Last week, the Biden administration announced they tapped Gabe Klein to lead the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation as executive director. Gabe will oversee efforts to support the deployment of $7.5 billion to build a national electric vehicle charging network with the focus on filling gaps in rural and disadvantaged communities and hard-to-reach locations. Gabe joined the podcast earlier this year to talk about his work with parking, mobility, and transportation in places like Washington, D.C. and Chicago. And let me tell you, he knows parking. He's got parking street cred. I thought this week would be a perfect time to re-air this episode. Congrats, Gabe, on the awesome appointment and best of luck. Don't forget about parking. You're listening to The Parking Podcast. Views and opinions are my own. Welcome back to another episode of The Parking Podcast. With us today is Gabe Klein. How are you doing today, Gabe? I'm doing great, Isaiah. How are you? I'm good. We were talking before the podcast, but you are one of two people in the world to have been on the No Parking Podcast and The Parking Podcast. So how does that feel? <laughs> I feel like they're both the No Parking Podcast. Uh, <laughs> really? But no, no. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, I think... Um, it speaks to how open-minded I am about certain things. <laughs> yeah, no, we had a great conversation before, but um, you know, I think you, the work you deal with with cities and your past history, you've had your uh, hands in parking a lot. So I think you'd have a lot of great knowledge to share with our listeners, but let's jump right in there. So again, a very impressive resume, a commissioner of the Chicago Department of Transportation, a director of the District of Columbia Department of Transportation. Now you have your own firm. We'll get into that in CityFi, but uh, kind of tell us uh, how it all got started. How, how do you go from graduating school to being the uh, commissioner for the Chicago Department of Transportation? Yeah, well, it was a wild uh, ride. Um, I, you know, I'm really an entrepreneur uh, or an intrapreneur, depending on, I guess, what my job was at the time. And I've spent, you know, most of my career in startups, um, ranging from, you know, bicycle startups, like I worked for the largest bike retailer in the world, um, Zipcar, uh, my own electric organic food truck company. I helped other people with their startups. Um, and then, you know, ended up working in government um, as the head of the DC Department of Transportation. And, I think it was because Mayor Fenty, Adrian Fenty, who now actually is a is venture capitalist uh, with Mac Ventures, his own uh, VC firm. But you know, at the time, I think he wanted somebody who was really thinking outside the box because cities were changing so much, and he had such you know uh, awesome sort of hopes and and desires for DC, for Washington DC to be a world class city, and he used to say that. Like, there's no time to waste, you know, this is a world-class city. And, and so he looked for people that, that didn't have the traditional views. And, and I guess I was one of those people that thought we could do a lot better and had the honor of serving uh, him and, and the citizens of my hometown of D.C., which was great. And then, uh, you know, when Adrian, unfortunately, <clears throat> didn't get reelected, Rahm Emanuel was uh, leaving the White House to run for mayor of Chicago and, and asked me if I would uh, come along uh, after working on the transition for him. And so 
that was a great experience because I got to serve at the beginning of an administration, whereas for Adrian, I sort of came came on midway through, and I really wanted to see how an administration came together. And I was able to get a lot done, I think, in both cities with just amazing teams, but even more in Chicago because I had a better base of understanding in terms of how city government worked. You know, when, when your first job is running an agency in, in, in government, you don't necessarily have that sort of nuts and bolts sense of how things get done. The blessing is that you don't really know what the limitations are. But anyway, after that, uh, I came back to D.C. to start a family uh, with my wife, uh, Stephanie, and sort of build a new house and all this stuff. And I joined Fontenelle's Partners as a, a venture partner um, on their second fund. And now we're on our third fund. And so I do spend some time doing that and investing in companies. And then I also advise a cadre of companies. Uh, and that's how I sort of started thinking about CityFi with a few key partners that had been working in cities. And uh, they'd all worked in the private sector as well. And we thought like at this moment in time, this is 2015, 16, you know, how do we think about bringing public and private together to address some of these major problems that we have around sustainability, equitable access, you know, like families moving back to cities, uh, displacement, you know, all of the stuff that was happening. And we thought, well, we're going to have to have people working together. And so we, we really fixated on helping cities to work with the private sector, but also helping the private sector figure out how to have more positive results working with cities. And it's been just an amazing ride the last five years. And um, we've worked with, you know, dozens of cities around the U.S., also some cities uh, outside of the U.S., like Chengdu and China or Singapore. And so, um, yeah. And so here, here we are. Most recently, I got to serve on the transition uh, for um, President Biden and Vice President Harris for transportation, which is an amazing experience and a lot of work. And uh, now I'm back at it, just working with cities and companies and investing and doing all the things that, you know, hopefully bring the world to a slightly better place. Wow, what a what a story! That's such a great, uh, great wealth of knowledge there and experience, and to work with the transition there. That's really exciting. And and you you talked about the beginning how you have this entrepreneurial entrepreneurial background. How was how was that jumping into working for city government? Because I work in in my day job, I, I and sometimes nights and weekend job, I, I work in the municipal sector, and it seems almost to be anti-entrepreneurial at times, bureaucracy, RFPs, ordinances and bonds dictating where funds can, you know, so it's very difficult sometimes to make changes. And so how was your experience? Because you made a lot of uh, progress and change in, in a lot of these transportation departments you joined, but did you face a lot of roadblocks or did is that kind of, and again, you, you use the term, he wrote the book on that. I think you literally wrote a book on that, but uh, kind of what what was that like, and and how do you think um, how do you think it's improved over the years for cities to have to be more entrepreneurial, to be more nimble, to be more like a yeah. startup? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, for one thing, I got to work for two mayors that were entrepreneurial, and that made all the difference. I was also in a in a high level job. You know, I think if you're in a lower level in an organization, it can feel very bureaucratic, and I was sensitive to that. And I tried to elevate people with great ideas, no matter where they were within the organization. I tried to listen to everybody, because some of the younger sort of last in people, or just you know 
people coming from other careers into the agencies, they had some of the best ideas. There were also people that had been there in a long time that had great ideas, but they hadn't been listened to. And so, you know, in many ways, my job was to remove the obstacles for more entrepreneurship within the agency. And I was blessed that my bosses wanted that level of innovation and they had the same lack of uh, patience that I had for unnecessary bureaucracy that really, you know, wasted the taxpayers' time and, and in some cases money. And where I felt like there were urgent priorities around safety, you know, um, you know, people's children, you know, getting hit by cars uh, on the way to school is just completely unacceptable, right? And so I felt a real sense of urgency to make as much change as I could fast, not just for my two mayors and for the cities we were in, but we were setting a national example. And we were showing other mayors and other heads of DOTs how to do it. And we had mayors like Mitch, Mitch Landrieu, who's now over at the White House managing this, um, you know, the uh, infrastructure bill. He came to Chicago and he spent two hours with me, uh, with his chief of staff, talking through all the change we had made, you know. And so it was a big responsibility. And, uh, you know, it was really, I would say it was exhilarating and fun, actually. And I would say that I got to be more entrepreneurial in those jobs or as entrepreneurial as in my private sector jobs. And so it's absolutely possible. And the leverage you have is so great because the funds are so massive, you know, I mean, when you added up all the different budgets that we had, like in DC, it was, it was almost a billion dollars um, per well, year. When you add in the, the money we're giving the Metro and our capital budget and our operating budget and our enterprise fund and all of those things. So, you know, there's really quite a bit of um, opportunity to make pretty dramatic change fast with the right leadership. And I think I had you know, great leadership. I tried to provide uh, good leadership for my team. And, uh, and the results, yeah, I, I did write a, uh, about them in, in, in the book and, and failures too, by the way, in, in Startup City. And, and that was really fun and cathartic. And then I got to travel around the world and you know, speak about that, which was a, you know, also an amazing experience. Yeah, and I've, I've seen it just working for different companies in my career. And it's when you have an op, entrepreneurial boss, man, it is, it's fun. It, it's, you're going to work hard, but you're going to have a lot of fun. You're going to get a lot of wins. And it, it really does make a difference. And I think it, you're right. It, it, it starts with the top, having that leader that does that. I love what you talked about. Sometimes it's the, the rookies, the, the last one in that sometimes have the best ideas and looking to elevate those so they can uh, make better change. And, Great story. Yeah. And, and some of those wins, one of them I remember, and I may have my timelines wrong, but I, I know you were involved with this, but man, I, I remember 10, 15 years ago at a parking conference and they were saying you can now pay meters on your cell phone. I'm like, I don't get it. What? No city's going to do this. And they were like, <laughs> actually, Washington DC's already signed up and they're doing it. I'm like, this is crazy. And of course, now is all we know. And like, you know, some cities, 95% of their payments are mobile payments, but I know that yeah. was huge. I think you were involved in the decision-making and implementing of, of mobile payments in DC. Talk about that. If, if you weren't, I apologize, but if you were, kind of talk about taking the risk and trying that and yeah. rolling that out in a big city like DC. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm really proud of that. And a lot of people don't know much about it. And you know, that's one of those examples of like taking risk, but mitigating the risk all along the way. And, and what I mean by that is like, 
like our parking system was so antiquated in, in Washington, and I'm sure it was in a lot of other places where you have these, you know, mechanical meters that were constantly failing, right? These old meters from like the 70s. And um, we're losing tons of money as a result. And also we're giving people a bad experience um, at the curb, uh, the consumer, and then also making it hard for businesses with, you know, bad turnover and so on and so forth. And so we knew it was a big thing to change. And we wanted to do a lot of testing because there were, you know, a lot of new meters uh, coming out. Uh, there were new pay-by-phone systems. And so we, we decided to uh, run a, a, a more formal pilot system uh, where we had, I think, eight different vendors and we ran them in different configurations of their services around Washington, D.C. And then we went out and actually you know, tested them ourselves, but we let the public test them and give us feedback on what they thought worked and didn't work. And it was extremely telling. Like one of the meters that we internally thought was really whiz-bang cool and, and liked and probably would have procured, we, we found that the, the public didn't know how to use it. It wasn't intuitive enough uh, for the public to easily figure out how to use it. And, you know, with the tens of millions of visitors that DC gets a year, we felt like it's very important for it to be intuitive. And so we ended up with a combination of a multi-space meter company, a uh, single space uh, digitally networked uh, meter, and a pay-by-phone system. And they were deployed in different areas, uh, the, the um, infrastructure, depending on the type of streetscape. And then the pay-by-phone was layered on across the entire city. And what was really crucial about that is that the meters were networked with the pay-by-phone system from the jump. And so when you would, you know, walk up and pay by phone, you would see like the IPS meter would start uh, blinking green. People were amazed by that. They were just like, holy cow, like, how is this happening? The technology was all there. It was about us doing the thinking, allowing the private sector to come in and test their wares. And by the way, yep. they learned a lot too. A lot of them hadn't been able to see all this new technology on the street integrated with other vendors. So, you know, we did that over a matter of a few months. Then we made an educated procurement decision that we knew was good versus hoping for the best, right? And that's where the pilots are so important. And sometimes these days we do pilots. Like we, we piloted a bunch of stuff back then before people were piloting. And, and the vendors even were like, wow, you're piloting all this stuff? We're like, yeah, why not? Come on, bring <laughs> your wares, put it on the street, show us what you can do. We'll spend time with you. Um, now there's a lot of pilots done and it's like, there's just a pilot. There's no plan to scale it. If it works, we knew we were going to procure what worked and, um, you know, and instantly we increased our revenue by like, I forget, it's like $18 million, like pretty instantly. We, um, we had like our, our scores from the public went through the roof. I mean, they love the new system. They were happy to pay the convenience fee to use their phones. People stopped getting as many parking tickets. That didn't mean there were less parking tickets because there were more people turning over, people were overstaying their welcome, but it was just a lot more user-friendly system. You could, you could, um, you could uh, say, hey, I'm gonna be here for an hour, and then when there's five minutes up, you could extend it. And people, you know, it suffered through years of, of a bad parking system. So I'm very, very proud of that. And I actually did a um, streets blog video, or, or street films video, with um i watched it i actually watched it (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. so if you're a real parking nerd like we are check it out oh that's awesome and it just you know now it seems so simple but back then again you talk about being nimble and entrepreneurial it's it seems so easy we're just going to add this additional payment form well 
No, you had to get the enforcement team, the police understanding how it works and how to check the link or app or integrate with the handhelds. You had to get uh, finance familiar with the, the new reporting and reconciliation with the mobile vendors. You got to get the customer trained. So it's just, it's really impressive, especially people that are kind of leaders in doing this first, especially so many years ago. So that's, that's really cool. And, and um, what about just, it, it doesn't have to be parking related. You know, we have a lot of transportation directors, curb management. What were some other uh, changes or things you implemented at, at Washington, D.C. while you were there? Oh, gosh. Um, we did so many interesting things and pilots. I mean, we expanded the, um, the circulator bus system, and we even expanded it over to uh, a stop in Virginia, which was a little bit taboo at the time. We, we passed the ability to use uh, general activity revenue bonds and built a $350 million set of bridges, the um, 11th Street Bridges, and they came in um, under budget and uh, a year early. So we were very proud of that. Like basically, whether it was tactical urbanism, like putting in the first protected bike lanes in, in the region, uh, whether it was services like pay by phone or whether it was building really complex infrastructure, we showed that we could do it all in Washington, D.C. And I was really, really proud of that. And, you know, that was built on the, on the shoulders of great, you know, folks like Dan Tangerlini and Emeka Maname and, and others that came before me. And I was just on the phone with, with the leadership of DDOT today. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of the best agencies in, in the country, you know, just super competent. It's a state and a city agency, so it's really unique. And um, I, I'm really proud that I got to play a role there and to see it continue to, you know, grow and, and do a great job is, is just awesome. Um, a few other things, you know, we launched Capital Bike Share, which was one of the first uh, or the first large uh, bike share system in, in the United States. Uh, we started building the um, streetcar here in D.C. And we did some other things that you wouldn't know as much about. Like we started um, publishing all of our projects on the web with updates. Um, we, we revamped uh, and built our own permitting system in-house so that anybody can get a permit over their computer for just about anything. Um, we revamped the way public space was utilized. So instead of people just putting up, up these signs around the city saying, hey, I'm taking this space out of service and going to the hardware store to buy a sign, you'd actually apply for a permit and you'd go print it out uh, at your local precinct and put it up. So we started to actually get control of the, of the public space. Yeah, I saw and that then, in, the, in the Street Lab video as well. That was yeah. pretty cool where you don't think about how many you know, U-Hauls are rented to move in and to move out and the chaos that that brings. So having a way for uh, the public to do, especially, man, this is 10, 12 years ago. That was pretty uh, groundbreaking. Well, and then when we got to Chicago, and, and I say we, because Leah Treat and Scott Kubley came with me to Chicago. They were awesome. And, um, you know, we said, let's take this, like taking control of the curbside a step further and let's not let the and we started to reform this in D.C., but let's not let the utility companies, the developers, just come in and destroy the streets we just paved. And so we, we, we put this program in place to coordinate all the work in, in the public right-of-way and to force everybody to coordinate so we wouldn't waste taxpayers' money and we wouldn't have their streets torn up all the time. It was a huge success. And yeah, are you we, telling me you were doing curb management before there was such thing as curb management? Oh, Yeah. No, we were really the original <laughs> curb manager. I mean, I'm sure there are other folks out there also doing curb management, but we were 
We were coordinating every bit of construction in the right of way. We also changed the uh, standards. So after you came in and uh, tore up a street, couldn't be torn up for seven years. If you did, if you were allowed to, to come in and you made a cut in the right of way, you had to restore it to the halfway point in the street. And, I mean, all kinds of stuff behind the scenes that people wouldn't know about, but made a big difference in like the everyday sort of, you know, quality of life for people. And then we also marketed what we did. You know, we started using C-Click Fix in 2009 in DC so people could see what was going on their street and even talk through the Washington Post website and sort of give feedback to politicians and so on. We did the Building a New Chicago uh, program where we marketed all the projects across the city so people could really see the investments that, that were being made and connect them back to their tax dollars. And, you know, as a private sector person, fundamentally, like, I just felt like that level of accountability uh, and transparency was, was what government should be all about. Yeah, I love that. I used to work with, as a contractor for the city of Louisville, and they, I was there kind of when they started, they call it like open Louisville. I, I guess all cities kind of do it now, but oh, yeah. it was, yeah. and this sounds like what you do with DC, but just putting data out there, being transparent, being visible. This is, this is how much parking revenue came in. This is what we're doing with the revenue. This is the wins. This is how many break-ins we had in this area, but man, and then we didn't have to do the work. Like these tech wizards and entrepreneurs that weren't a part of the city would take that data and create <laughs> websites and tools that I would use just for information. It was, it was pretty yeah. cool. So I love well, that. That's what it's all about. Being transparent, being public, getting out there and talking to your stakeholders, but well done. Actually, actually on that, you know, um, Michael Schnurley was the chief data officer in Louisville, uh, did an amazing job there from 2016 to 2020. We work with him uh, from the city side when he when the mobility data specification was being spun out of LADOT, they were really active users of it. And now he's at the Open Mobility uh, Foundation, um, director of open source operations. So like a lot of those smaller cities have really, really great people doing amazing work. And it's, it's important that they get recognized too. And then that there's cross pollination, you know, public, private, NGO, foundation, and that's happening more and more with people like Michael. And I think it's really, really important because you get, you get better ideas in government or the private sector when people move back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And a lot of my clients that work for the city have private backgrounds. And I find, I mean, I love all my clients, but I do find that those that have the private background kind of think about things or approach things differently, maybe more nimble, more open to pilots and maybe a uh, a lot of the times the fear is a, a, a company that doesn't have the references. They're newer, they're unproven, and, but they just need that one chance. So really, really cool. And, and uh, like you said, the DC kind of provided a blueprint that you could take to Chicago. And let's talk about Chicago. So again, hired by Ron Manuel as the commissioner. Many of our listeners, they hear Chicago, they hear parking guy, transportation guy, they immediately jump to the 75-year, $1 billion lease of the parking meter system. Oh, yeah. I believe this was, hopefully, I think this was before you got there, but do you have any thoughts on this kind of maybe good, bad, and different, or maybe pros and cons if there are some of either, but just go ahead. Well, what, what are your thoughts on that? It was an absolutely terrible deal for the city, and it was made to plug a short-term budget hole. And I think, you know, 
when you're under duress trying to make decisions like that, you make bad decisions. So when I got there, you know, it was like our, our hands were tied on the curbside. And I actually wrote in my book about how we were able to overcome it just to use the public space creatively and to create parklets and such. And we, we you know, that story shows that there, where there's a will, there's a way, which I can talk about in just a minute. But you never want to give up control of your curbside. I mean, that's just silly. Now, you know, what I would have done is I would have bonded against the value of the curbside. That's right? just going to ask you because you, you do talk a lot about partnering with private. Um, yeah. But doing it uh, <laughs> in a smart, equitable way. But yeah, what would, yeah, that was exactly my next question. Kind of how would you approach it? Something like that. And a side note, I did hear, I think already this year, I'm not sure how many years it's been, maybe 10, 12 years, but they've already recouped their billion dollar investment. So <laughs> anything for the yeah. next 65 years is, uh, could be considered profit, I guess. But yeah, no, it's, go ahead. How, how yeah, would you approach this? Yeah. Operating gravy. I mean, I mean, look, I don't fault the private sector too much. I mean, I, you know, they did take advantage, but on the other hand, it's like, you know, it's it, it, the, the government needs to keep watch in terms of their assets. And in this case, there was no reason to give it up unless politically you felt like you couldn't raise the rates to market rates. And I do think that that probably fed into the decision making for, for Mayor Daly, where it was like, well, look, we'll never be able to charge three, four, five, six dollars an hour. But if we give it to the private sector, they can do that sort of off of our plate. Um, but the problem is that you lose control of the asset, right? And then they could have raised the, they can raise the price to 12 or $15 an hour if they want to. And um, what I would have done personally, you know, I would have approached it a different way where we maintain control of the asset. We might've entered into a public-private partnership where we have somebody put in the technology uh, and um, manage the system for us, but we own the system. And then um, we can always bond against the future value of those revenues. And, you know, if, if the mayor needed a, a, a billion two, there's a way to get there. Um, but to lose control of the asset, that means that after the 10 years is paid off, you got no control of the asset for the next 60 years, 65 years. I mean, that's sort of ridiculous, you know? And, and uh, yeah. Now, and, and, we did dig into the contract when I was there. And what we found is a loophole because we wanted to put parklets into the uh, neighborhoods, right? particularly into business districts like Andersonville or Lincoln Park. And so we're not going to pay $12,800 a year to use our own public space or used to be our public space to put in a parklet. But I remember from my Zipcar days where we had to put in 83 spaces into D.C. on the streets, that the only way politically viable to do that was to find unregulated space. And for those of us in the parking world, or even if you're not, you're just a parker, you know that there's those weird spaces where it's like it's two spaces but one sign or that weird space at the end of the block that's sort of unregulated. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Right? So so we would basically work with the local business districts and business improvement districts and say, hey, give us a map of all your unregulated spaces. They knew where they all were, where all the bodies were, you know, all the parking bodies were buried. So we go out and find them and we read the contract closely and it turned out that if we put parking spaces into service in their system, that actually we would collect 85% of the revenue. So that, and they would just take an administrative fee basically for running everything. So then we're like, well, shoot, 
If we find a space that's unregulated, we put it into a parklet for six months out of the year when the weather's nice, then we put it into parking service for six months. Not only do we get our parklet, but we generate 85% uh, revenue times six months out of the year. So basically putting in parklets went from something that could not be done to something that we had to do to generate more revenue for the city. And that's why reading your contracts is important and being creative is important. And then later when we went, and you heard this here first, when we went to build the Chicago Riverwalk and we're looking for revenue streams, one of the things we proposed to Mayor uh, Rahm Emanuel was, hey, let's put parking meters on Wacker Drive or pay by phone. They ultimately didn't do that, but we could have generated millions of dollars a year and all for the city and not for Morgan Stanley if we had done that because all net new meters into the system, all uh, 85% of the revenue goes to the city. Man, this is a masterclass. I'm just taking notes and notes. <laughs> That's great stuff. And I like how you kind of think outside the box when, when thinking about solutions like that. Yeah, it's a, and the smaller vehicles get, the more spaces you could add in those unregulated spaces to make more revenue and take more control. That's, that's really interesting. And, and talk about kind of losing control of the assets. This is not related, but it, it did remind me of something. So working with a lot of cities, one concern that they had is that they work with these reservation companies that reserve parking spaces and garages, yeah. on-street lots. And it's kind of like Priceline where they they have a lease, they pay an X amount each month. Um, but what happens is that these aggregators start to control your rates because they could say, you know, it's it's free this day. You reserve with us and this space is free, or it's five dollars today, ten dollars tomorrow, and kind of take over the rate, kind of like how Priceline does with Sometimes it's cheaper to get it on Priceline than to go through the actual hotel. But I don't know. I just thought it was interesting kind of losing control of the pricing or lose control of your asset. It just made me think of that. But one thing you talked about with the with Chicago parking, speaking of uh, meters and parking tickets, you wrote an article for Forbes recently talking about how it's time to get rid of parking tickets and change. I like the, the playing words there. But can you kind of give the spark notes uh, about this uh, this idea about getting rid of parking tickets and what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, I mean, in some sense, you could argue that we treat adults like children. You know, we, we say, you know, if you overstay your, your uh, limit in a parking space, we're going to ding you. We're going to charge you $50, you know. And, and what pay by phone did, even though there were still limits, like in a two-hour parking zone, you still had to move. Um, if you paid for an hour, you could extend into that second hour, right? Uh, no penalty, you just had to pay another uh, processing fee. And so as I started to think about this and I started to look at the technology that's available now um, to monitor parking spaces, whether it's the old pucks or whether it's cameras with you know software, I mean, anything can be a sensor these days. And so I started to think about like, what would be the ideal way to charge for parking? if you didn't have to enforce because you were monitoring space 24 seven, right? And I thought, well, what you really want is turnover. And so let's say you're in a business district, you're in front of a hardware store, and they ideally want turnover every 15, 20 minutes, right? So you price it so that it's really advantageous to park there for 15 minutes, but then it doubles for the next 15 minutes. And then from there, it might double even 
you know, so let's say it's $2 the first 15, and it's gonna be $4 the second 15, and it's gonna be $8 the third 15. And 20, 30, doesn't matter. Who knows? Yeah. But, uh, and, and look, I, those are just made up numbers. But my point is like, you price for the behavior that you want, and you don't treat people like children, you just let them pay for what they want. And if they end up staying for two hours, it'll be like they got a parking ticket. But they just paid the fees. And I think that we'll get better behavior from people if we just charge what the market rate should be. Um, and that might mean also at night where you have no parking um, from midnight to six, maybe you do offer parking and maybe you charge, maybe the demand's low, you charge 25 to 50 cents. So, you know, so-and-so can come over and uh, uh, park their car and see their boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, whatever, right? And, and, and so it's not about gouging people. It's about charging market rate and generating more revenue for the city based on uh, demand. And what are the social outcomes that you want? Do you want more turnover for business? Do you want equity? Do you want uh, sustainability? Do you want to uh, create more bike lanes? Like, what is it that you want to do? And then just use the pricing mechanism to get there. And with companies like, for instance, Automotive, um, that have the technology to monitor the space 24-7, you can start with vehicles like loading zones with trucks, right, where it's not controversial, and you just charge them for every minute that, that they're there. So the other idea is, like, charge by the actual minute. And we deployed this in Southeast D.C. on private streets with Forest City, now Brookfield, and, uh, and, and it went really well. I mean, like, basically... Uh, the technology start- the technology's there. I mean... It's there. We're, we're doing it's half there. of that with tolling already. You know how many cities or states have ditched the, ditched the uh, registering and all that. Just, they read your plate. They have your information. They bill you. Same thing should be done with parking. In fact, we run the MBTA parking, Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority, and it's kind of what you do. You you park. There's no meters. Nothing. You 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 can pay on the app. If not, you get invoiced. They look up your plate and they mail you. Of course, it's cheaper if you pay yourself so they don't have to mail you a letter. But I mean, the technology is there. I think cities are, are primed for that. I love the idea. Uh, Shoop calls it the progressive uh, pricing or uh, escalated pricing. I can't remember. He has different terms for it. But yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, Get rid of the two-hour turnover. Do turnover through pricing. Like you said, it's $2 for the first hour, 5 for the second, 15 for the third. If you want to park in front of your business all day and pay $270 to do it, you go right ahead. We'll take that, make more money than issuing parking tickets and treating them like children. I think you're exactly right. And I think the, and I also think you're right in the steps because I think the low hanging fruit is we have so many delivery, FedEx, beer trucks, just double parked, just not paying parking wherever they want. And I think we have their play. Why, why can't we get, Everyone registered. They would probably appreciate it. I think I read, and I can't remember the numbers, but FedEx in New York City pays like, you know, five hundred million dollars in parking tickets a year. I'll have so to put crazy. the yeah, I'll put the correct number in the show notes, maybe if I can well, find that. They, but it's it'd it be way cheaper if they paid for the time they were priced and they parked where they should. It would help everything: congestion, your bike lanes, your yeah. It'd save them money, and well, mayors and- would get reelected. Right, and it's a business expense. It's a business expense. Parking tickets are not a business expense, so you end up not being able to write that off on your corporate taxes. But you can absolutely write off 
paying for parking. It, it, it's a basic cost and then you get a tax break on it. So yeah. it's just like, it's just sort of silly the way we do it now. And with the technology that's um, available, I don't see why we wouldn't move faster. And it's because and, of what we talked about having leaders, mayors, transportation directors that are entrepreneurial, that are willing to implement change. And one way to improve that skill is through reading your book. So give a plug for uh, the Startup City, inspiring private and public entrepreneurship, getting projects done and having fun. So talk to us a little bit about this book and maybe how listeners can get a hold of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so when I left government, you know, I started getting a lot of invites to come speak. And, um, you know, I couldn't go everywhere uh, all the time. And it was flattering, though. And I, and I went to as many places as I could. But I realized there was demand because people were like, how, how are you able to get so much done so quickly? That was the number one question I got. How are you able to then overcome bureaucracy? How are you able to fund all of this? And so it became a long list of questions. And I basically took that list of questions and put it into an outline. And at the same time, a publisher reached out to me and said, hey, have you ever considered writing something about your experiences? And I was like, huh, well, actually, I was just thinking about it. And then Knight Foundation was generous enough to fund the production of the book. And so um, it just sort of came together. And it was it was harder than I thought to write a book, uh, but it was also really fun, sort of cathartic, uh, interesting. And then I didn't really realize that it would give me this platform to go speak a lot and meet a lot of really fascinating, interesting uh, people. And so the book can be found uh, in some of your local bookstores, uh, or you can order if it's not there, or Amazon definitely has it, or Barnes and Noble. Amazon, for many people, is probably the easiest. And um, yeah, I, I tried to, so it's got a lot of pictures, it's got like 95 pictures, it's colorful, it's small. I wrote it so like a grad student uh, or a woman with a purse could sort of just like take it with them, right? You could take it on a plane easily and read it. And so you could read it in like five hours probably, four hours, you know, it's not like a super long read, but it's meant to be sort of hard hitting and impactful, particularly for those that are thinking about going from government to the private sector or private sector to government or just wanting to work with one, one or the other and trying to get some inspiration as to how to cut through the morass, you know, the, the sort of day-to-day -day roadblocks, if you will, and to have fun while doing it. <laughs> I love the tagline. And, um, I have ordered it, has not arrived yet, but I can't wait to get my hands and read on it. And from what I've heard by listening to the other podcasts, it's a must read if you're in city government, um, in transportation, in, you know, uh, public-private working together. It's it's a it's a must-read. I uh, man, I really appreciate you joining the podcast. I know now you're with Cityfy. Can you also tell our listeners how they can learn more or follow along with Cityfy? Yeah. Um, so Cityfy uh, is an awesome little firm, and uh, we have Fortune 100 clients. We've got startup clients. We've got cities all over that we work with. Um, counties, uh, MPOs, and, you know, we really work on change. You know, we have such pressing issues in terms of outcomes that we need to see change uh, in our society. And uh, a lot of our work is mobility, transportation, or straight technology. 
Um, but all of it is meant to, you know, actually affect a societal outcome. And so we work on, you know, for instance, we've been working with uh, four cities on autonomous vehicle pilots. We worked on budget resilience with five cities. We, um, we work with, you know, telcos on broadband equity. We work with um, technology companies on how to go to market in cities in a way that's positive, that shares revenue with cities or that um, uh, instead of revenue meets needs that they have around equity, for instance. And so, you know, it's really fun, interesting work. And in a given day, you know, I'll go from talking like the CEO of a major corporation to somebody, you know, at USDOT or the White House to um, somebody in a startup just breaking into to, uh, to the technology or mobility space and helping them. And I think that keeps it really interesting and fresh and fun for me. So because for me, just doing government or just doing startup or private sector stuff would be a little boring. Getting to do it all is really, really key. That's great. And I'll put their website in the show notes, but please check them out. Reach out to Gabe. Gabe, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast and uh, sharing some of your successes and things you learned with our listeners. Thank you, Isaiah, for doing the podcast and for having me. It's been great. This episode is brought to you by Parker Technology, the customer experience solution of choice in the parking industry. Parker's solution puts a virtual ambassador in every lane to help parking guests pay and get on their way in under a minute. Parker helps capture revenue, provides better customer service, enables your staff to focus on other on-site tasks, and keeps traffic moving, all according to your business rules. With the Parker solution, you'll also enjoy access to real-time call data and recordings. Learn more at helpmeparker.com slash parkingpodcasts. This episode is brought to you by Tez Technology. Since 1993, Tez has developed innovative text-based mobile solutions designed to streamline operations, increase efficiency, and improve overall customer experiences. My favorite is the ability to pay for parking without having to download an app. Tez Solutions includes SMS valet, text to park, permit to park, and much more. I think every organization or city or university should be adding Tez to their payment options arsenal. Learn more about Tez at tezhq.com.